You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We'll be starting in verse 10 this morning. I want to get right into it because uh, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end uh, of our time together this morning uh, so that we remember. Chandler, my mic is like hot. There we go. Uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember the good news uh, that Jesus died to save each one of us, not because of anything that any of us have done, uh, but simply because of his, his grace in our lives. And so today in Luke chapter 13, Jesus is going to teach about the kingdom of God, and we're going to look at two stories. One describes what the kingdom of God is not like, and one describes what the kingdom of God is like. So let's look at it together, starting in verse 10 of Luke 13. Says now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for eighteen years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, that means angry, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the, all the glorious things that were done by him. Verse 18, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word this morning, and I thank you for... Uh, the richness of it. I thank you for the truth of it. I thank you that one, that we have it in our language and we can understand it and that it's meant to point us to you and who you are uh, because that's what's best for us is to know you, to know who you are and to be a part of your kingdom, not our kingdom, not some earthly kingdom, but to be a part of your kingdom. That's, that is our ultimate desire this morning. So we thank you for the truth of these scriptures that, that teach us about um, what it means to be a part of your family, part of your kingdom. And so I pray that you would help us to understand this morning. I pray that you'd help us to remember the cross this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper um, and remember the grace that you have shown us, God that we do not deserve, God, but we love you, and we praise you, and we pray all this in your son's name, amen, amen. All right, so Jesus, uh, as it says in verse 10, he, he is teaching in a synagogue on a Sabbath, uh, 
And this was very, very common for him. Uh, this was a very normal activity. In this period, where we're talking about Jesus' teaching in Luke, uh, about 10 chapters. This is where he did it most of the time. He did it in these synagogues. The synagogues were these local gatherings of Jews um, that, that weren't close to Jerusalem. They couldn't go to the temple, so they, they created little synagogues in their towns so that they could come together and learn God's Word. Now, Jesus wasn't the primary teacher. We're going we're gonna to interact with him here in a minute, the ruler of the synagogue. But he would have, as a rabbi, he would have been given a time in the service or at some point, uh, maybe a certain uh, Sabbath, to stand up and teach. And what we know that he did from, from other times in the New Testament where it talks about this, he would take the Old Testament and he would read it and he would point to himself. And he would say, I am here to fulfill this. This was talking about me. This was, God was doing this to teach you about me and what I am doing as the Christ, as the Messiah. Now, it's important that we note that this was on the Sabbath. And that doesn't mean a whole lot to us as Christians. That's not Sunday. That was Saturday for them. But for Jews, the Sabbath was one of the... Uh, very unique things that they did that no one else did in the world. Sabbath was a time, uh, a day of rest established by the scriptures. They weren't supposed to work. They shut it down and rest, right? That's what it was intended to be. Now, what had happened over time is the religious leaders, uh, the, the rulers of the synagogue, the Pharisees, the Levites, all these different kinds of religious leaders, what they had done is they had added all kinds of extra traditions and boundaries and rules to what it meant to rest and not work, right? This is, this is what government does. Uh, they don't just keep things simple. No, what do they do? They add regulation after regulation, and they tell you how you can live your life and not live your life and what you can do, all these little details. And, and these religious leaders had done that. They talked about how far you could walk or couldn't walk, what kinds of things you could lift or couldn't lift, uh, where you could go, where you couldn't go, what kinds of activities were considered work and not. And the original intent... God's instruction from the beginning was rest, don't work. And they had added much to it. Now it says, verse 11, uh, behold, I love Luke because he just, he uses these behold all the time and we, we kind of skip over them. But it says like, it's like behold, you know, a, this lady just appears from nowhere. Behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And so whatever town he's in, in their gathering in the synagogue that day, Jesus looks around and he sees, he sees this woman, kind of like Lydia that you were talking about earlier. He sees this woman and it says that she has this disabling spirit. So what it means is that she's been possessed. She is demon possessed. And we think of demon possessed as uh, you got to be crazy, crazy eyes, you know, ojos locos in Spanish. Uh, You've got to be crazy if you're demon-possessed. But what had happened in her life because of her demon possession was what? She had this physical ailment. She had this uh, spine. We may call it scoliosis today. We may call it something else. But she had a bent spine that was unable to be straightened. This had caused massive amounts of pain. Uh, I don't know if any of you suffer from this. This caused massive difficulty with sleeping, with sitting. There's always discomfort in her life. 
She was severely limited in what she could and couldn't do uh, because of this disability caused by demonic possession. So she was a very physical picture in their midst that day of somebody who was possessed by the enemy. Somebody whose life was not the way God had intended it to be. And it says in verse 12, When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Jesus notices this woman in their gathering that day. And as so many other times, he doesn't just see her and move on. He has compassion. He's moved to action. And so he calls her over. It's important that we remember that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the Christ. And, and one of the prophecies that, that this brings to mind uh, for him to be the Christ comes from Isaiah 61.1. I don't think it's on the screens. Listen to this. This is talking about the, the Christ, the Messiah that would come. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The, the Messiah was coming to do those things in two ways, the physical, but also the spiritual, right? And so when Jesus sees this woman this day who is caught up in this demon possession, who is bound as a captive, who's enslaved to this prison of this disability, he calls her over and he goes, hey, this was my mission. This is what I was sent for. I'm sent here to set the captives free. Woman, you're free, right? He heals her immediately. Why? Because that's what he is about. It says in verse 13, that he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Now, sometimes in Scripture we see that Jesus lays his hands on, and we think of that as like a power transfer, maybe. <laughs> like, if I get my hands on you, then there's going to be stuff that oozes out from you. But sometimes Jesus just speaks, and it happens. Sometimes it just happens, right? So, so it's not, this is not telling us this is the way to make this happen. But the consistent theme of Scripture over and over again, we've seen it all throughout Luke. We've seen it in other places. Jesus is able to heal immediately. This woman does not go home and go, hey, here's your regiment. Go take this pill and do these uh, calisthenics or these exercises and your, your back will eventually straighten. That's not what he does. What does he say? Woman, you are freed. You're set free. Immediately she was healed. Immediately her back is straightened. Immediately she is free. And it says that she glorified God. She realized in the moment I, I can only imagine the doctors, the remedies, the, the things she had sought relief in those 18 years. All the money she had spent, all the time, the worry. And in that moment, as she straightens her back and she stands up tall for the first time in 18 years, and she's relieved of the pain, she knows this must be God. Because everything else I've tried has not worked. And so she praises God. And I think there's a sense that she is thinking of Isaiah 61.1, that the Messiah was coming to set the captives free. He was coming to loose the bonds of the, those who were enslaved, to open the prison, those who were bound. 
She's praising God for what? For sending the Messiah who's come to fix what is broken. That's why the Messiah is coming, to bring the kingdom of God, to begin to fix what has been broken in our world. This is an amazing day. It would be so cool to have been there. But the story takes an interesting turn. Look at verse 14. It says, But then the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, he said to the people, There's six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. This, man, what a guy. What a dude. Um, This ruler of the synagogue He's probably a priest. He's probably a Levite. He very well could be a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. And as this leader of this local synagogue, he has influence and he has power. But more than that, um, it's his responsibility to kind of enforce the rules of their system, to make sure that people are following the rules, make sure people are abiding by the law. Uh, But not just the law, also all the other stuff that the Pharisees have done. And as he watches this happen, right, as he watches, he hands over the stage to Jesus and he sees him break the rules. His immediately, his immediate reflex is anger. Man, what a guy, right? Everybody's like, man, I want to be friends with this guy, the ruler of the synagogue, right? What a terrible chap he was, right? How messed up for him to be indignant at this. Indignant means greatly displeased or angered. How messed up is his heart that he is mad because this woman of 18 years and this disability has been healed and all he can think about is, well, that doesn't fit in my little rules of what you're supposed to do and not do on the Sabbath, right? His heart is messed up. He's so quick to notice the failure of Jesus in his eyes, Jesus didn't fail, that he's missed what Jesus came to do as the Messiah, which was what? To set the captives free. And it's interesting because he, he tries to kind of, it's, it's really passive aggressive, I think is what we would call it today, because he doesn't call out Jesus. He doesn't go, hey, Jesus, that's wrong. What does he do? He speaks to the people. Look at it, verse 14. He says, you people, (laughs) he's not talking to Jesus. He says, there's six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. I mean, what a statement, right? Like, is anybody else just mad at this guy right now? If you you want to be healed, that's fine. Just come Monday through Friday, and then you can come again on Sunday, right? I mean, what a statement. He, he clarifies this rule. He shows that Jesus has broken it. And he, I guess he's like, fine. Like, you come, come on Friday, get healed. That's good. Jesus is the Messiah then. But he can't be the Messiah on the Sabbath, right? This is just not allowed. Can't, can't be having that here, right? Now, remember, we must remember, God's word has never said, do not heal on the Sabbath. Jesus is not sinning here because he went against the Pharisees' rule. They were adding things to God's very simple instruction and making that equivalent with the word of God. Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest and not working. It never said do not heal. And so what a silly statement to say, sorry, we're closed. This man's heart is 
becomes so consumed with his religion, so consumed with his rules, so consumed with, with making sure his life is tidy and clean and perfect and always in line that he has missed the heart of God. And what is at the center and the heart of God? Love and mercy and compassion, right? Look at verse 15. It says, Then the Lord answered him, even though he didn't speak to him. The Lord Jesus answered him and he said, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus calls them hypocrites. Remember, hypocrites are those who either proclaim something with their mouth and then live a different way or, or, or just live kind of two-faced lives. Like, I'm one thing over here and something else over here. The heart of it is inconsistency. That's the heart of what hypocrisy is. There's not consistency, realness. Uh, and, and what Jesus is showing them, he's going to show them this inconsistency in their life when it comes to the Sabbath. And he says, don't you untie your animals to lead them to water on Sabbath? This makes no sense to us because we're not Jewish. We don't practice the Sabbath. And I don't know how many of you have an animal tied up at home right now. But this would have been very normal for them. They all would have untied their animals to allow them to go get something to drink. That would not be work in their minds. That would have been allowed. And it, in fact, it would have been unmerciful it would have been unloving, maybe even, we would say, uh, cruelty to animals if they, they, they couldn't work and they did not untie them to allow them to get a drink, right? And they would have all agreed with that. Yeah, of course, I untie my animal to let them get a drink. And he turns it on them. And he says, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed, be untied, it's the same word, from this bond on the Sabbath day. Jesus is saying, if you, if you care for your animals in that way, how much more should we care for this woman who is suffering? It, it's the same language of the do not worry passage. If God so cares for the ravens, if he so cares for the flowers, how much more does he care about you? You are of immense more worth, right? It's the same logic that if your animals should be untied from their bondage, to walk in freedom, how much more should a child of God be untied from their bondage to walk in freedom? If this isn't work, then this isn't work. And Jesus is showing them that the heart of God, the center of his heart, was not keep all these rules so you stay good with me. His heart was love. His heart was compassion. His heart was mercy. Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He desires our mercy, not our rule keeping. And Jesus this day shows her immense mercy by healing her, rescuing her from this. And it says in verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. You get a sense that when the ruler of the temple heard Jesus' logic, heard his statement, they realized they were wrong. They, they realized, oh wow, I sound really sad that I'm more concerned about when the, Sabbath, when the synagogue's open for healing than the fact that this woman was healed. 
there, there's, a, there's a bit of repentance that their, their heart is not in the right place. And there's a bit of this news that everyone who saw this realized how glorious this is. They're, they're realizing that Jesus is the Messiah who's here to set the captive free, to loose the bonds of the captive, right? Now, why does Luke tell us this story? He's really getting at the central point of him telling this story is not really to just show Jesus' power. He's done that in, in better ways. He's told better stories, more significant stories to show Jesus' power. What, what Luke is after right here is he is talking about the Sabbath. And that's the reason for telling this story. And just as this woman was not intended to be bound by this disabling spirit, that was not the way it was ever meant to be, what he's saying is the people of God are not meant to be bound to strict rule keeping. It's not about keeping the Sabbath, right? Just as Jesus came to set her free, Jesus is coming to set them free from all of their rule keeping, trying to please God with their good works and their tidy lives and their clean behavior. Sabbath was not intended to be that. Sabbath was meant as a rest for God's people physically. But what is Sabbath really a picture of? That we can have rest. We don't have to work our way to God, right? And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to set them free from their work. Every single one of us in the room has tried and we've all failed. The Bible says that we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, whether it was massively public or incredibly private, every single one of us stands as those who cannot keep the law, cannot be perfect. And so why did Jesus come as the Messiah? To set us free from that. That's why we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, to remember that Jesus did what we could not do, that he set us free from the stuff that was in, had put us in bondage, had captivated us. And so the point of him telling this story is we should be set free And Jesus is the one who's come to do that. So the kingdom of God is not about strict rule keeping. The kingdom of God is about grace. And when we finally understand that, it's like a seed that's planted in our heart. Let's keep going. Verse 18. He continues to teach that day and he said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. The kingdom of God is what the Messiah is coming to bring. He's coming to start. He's coming to establish. It's the rule and reign of God on this earth and forever. And, and that's so big, it's hard to understand. So Jesus takes something that they do understand to compare it. Now, Jesus makes these comparisons, and he's just like with a parable, there's a point. There's one point. We can take him and we can apply it in all kinds of wrong ways. But he says here that it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. I don't know why Jesus uses mustard seed. Some of the commentators say that that would have been one of the smallest seeds that they were familiar with. I'm thinking all seeds are really small. He could have picked any of them. I don't think there's any 
significance to the fact that it's mustard, not mayonnaise seeds or whatever. I don't know where mayonnaise comes from, what tree that comes from. Uh, just kidding. It doesn't come from a tree. Okay. All right. The point is not about mustard and mayonnaise. The point is not about anything about the particularity of the mustard seed. The point is that the kingdom of God is small. It starts small and humble and modest. It's insignificant. That's how it starts. But it doesn't stay there. It grows into something that is significant, something that is multiplying. And as a seed is planted and given um, nutrients and moisture and sunlight, it grows and it multiplies. That's what it says in verse 19, that the mustard seed is planted. It grew, it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Now, here's a picture just for your own curiosity. Here's what a mustard seed looks like. Uh, pretty tiny. That's a lot of mustard seeds, not one. Um, but a mustard seed that's planted grows into a mustard tree. I think we have a picture of that. This was much harder to find. Apparently, this is what a mustard tree looks like. Um, they can be smaller. But it grows enough. One little seed is all that it took to grow that tree. One. One little seed. And that tree produces millions and millions of mustard seeds. It provides shade. It provides food for animals. Something that started so insignificant and small and and just not worth much at all turns into something that is significant and is multiplying. I I looked it up to to make enough mustard for a hot dog because I know you're all wondering right now. How many mustard seeds do I need to have enough mustard for my hot dog? And the definitive answer on Google is hundreds, hundreds. To have enough to to make a little squirt of mustard on your hot dog, you need hundreds of mustard seeds. To make an eight-ounce jar of mustard, you probably need a thousand, a thousand insignificant. So, So what is one mustard seed? It's insignificant. It it means nothing. It's not worth anything. There's not even a price for it. It's insignificant. But oh, what potential each seed planted has for multiplying, for providing for others. And I think the point of what Jesus is trying to say is we are so quick to degrade the value of one seed planted. We're so quick to doubt one little seed that is planted. Because we may never see the mustard seed grow into that kind of tree and produce that kind of fruit and that kind of shade and that kind of shelter for animals. And, and, and that's true in the spiritual world, right? We, we so devalue the, the value of one seed planted in somebody's heart, sharing the gospel with somebody, pointing them to Jesus and saying, you're not good enough, but he came and he died in your place. And we just think that that's just, it's just so insignificant. But Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like that. It starts like that and it grows in massive and significant ways. I was thinking about this and I've heard my dad tell this story from this pulpit. <laughs> and I got all the details wrong when I wrote this the first time. So I called him yesterday and got all the details right. Uh, the other story was way better than the one I'm about to tell. So anyway, my papa, my granddad, grew up 
uh, out in um, the oil fields of West Texas. And his dad was something to do with rigs. I don't know if he was a driller or I don't know. And so they just chased rigs. And uh, those were not seasons of great wealth and prosperity. It was a rough life. And my papa, as a kid, they were living in a, uh, a man camp out in Odessa, Texas. And I, I pulled up a picture of a man camp. Uh, it's pretty insignificant. <laughs> it's not ritzy, not very nice. And my papa, um, his dad, he was just a working man. He was just trying to provide for his family, doing whatever he could. This is in the Depression. This is in that era. And um, their family, he had an older sister who was basically an invalid. Uh, she required constant care from his mom. And his dad was always working. And so my papa really was an insignificant little boy in an insignificant little man camp out in insignificant Odessa, West Texas. His dad was not a Christian. I think his mom might have been, but because she cared for his older sister, Wanda, so much, they never went to church. And Paul's life was not destined for anything great. His life was a little mustard seed, not worth a whole, whole lot. And definitely not in terms of the kingdom of God. But as the story goes, there was a neighbor friend of theirs in the, in the camp who came by one day and was concerned for Ray Smith, my granddad. And they invited him to come to church with them. They asked because they knew the mom couldn't take him. They knew the dad wasn't interested. And so they picked him up and they brought him to church. And that day there was some special something for the kids where they gathered the kids up and they told them about Jesus and what he had done on the cross. And my papa, as the story goes, he told my dad this. The very first time he ever heard the good news of the gospel, he believed. And he was saved as an elementary school kid out in some little church out in Odessa, Texas. Now here's the point. Nothing really changed in his life. His dad never came to faith. His sister passed away early in life. His mom, I don't know. By all standards, it still was a humble, humble beginning. That seed was planted, but it took a long time before there was fruit. Papa tells the story that no one followed up with him. He, he prayed and he was saved. But no one from the church, I don't think even the neighbors who took him, no one came and was like, hey, here's what you need to do. Hey, here's how to grow in your faith. This is very, very insignificant. And what seems so insignificant in this moment has radically changed generations now. What happened to my papa at that point, that small mustard seed has massively produced fruit among his kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids. There are 40-plus people who are saved and believe in Jesus because of that little mustard seed. There are kids and grandkids who are giving their lives in full-time missions and ministry and scattering seed and multiplying that, that neighbor couple had no idea the seed that they were planting. They didn't know all the fruit that would come from it. They just knew this kid needs to hear about Jesus and we can do something about it. Let's plant this mustard seed. And this, the fruit that has come out of that, I mean, I've, 
I thought about this yesterday and I moved. I'm not moved by a lot. <laughs> I tell you all the time, I don't have emotions. But I'm moved thinking about the impact of that one seed on my family, on my kids that get to hear the gospel week in and week out because of that one seed. We're so quick to doubt the value and the, and, and the importance of one seed planted. But Jesus says, that's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. It has very humble, insignificant beginnings, but it grows and it produces fruit like you wouldn't imagine. Look at verse 20. And he said again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Maybe mustard trees aren't your specialty. <laughs> Maybe you're more of a ketchup guy. Um, so Jesus gives another example. Maybe you like baking bread, and maybe you understand that. He says the kingdom of God is like leaven. Leaven is yeast. And if you know anything about baking, I don't know a lot. Uh, my wife's into sourdough right now, so I get to reap the benefits of that. But I don't know a whole lot. But it takes about a tablespoon or less of yeast, a little bit. And it takes about three or four cups of flour. But what happens is was when you mix those together, that very small, insignificant amount affects the whole thing. And by the end, all of the bread will rise and become fluffy, delicious bread. And the point Jesus is making is that the kingdom of God starts as something small in my papa's heart, in my heart, in your heart. But it eventually affects the entire life. Every thought, every action, every uh, motivation is shaped and changed by what was started in that one seed, in that little bit of leaven that God put in our hearts, right? We are not meant to stay the way we are. The kingdom of God changes us. It, it, it infects every part of our life. How we handle money, how we raise kids, how we approach um, retirement, how we, how we have friendships, how we eat food, everything. It affects everything in our life. The kingdom of God takes over. And though it starts as something really small, it's meant to impact the whole so that what? We're not hypocrites. So that we have consistency of life. The kingdom of God starts very small. And here's the point today. The good news of the gospel is very simple. You must repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. That's the good news. You can't do it. Jesus did. Believe that. That's it. And if you believe that, then you will be saved. That's what the scripture says. He's like, Byron, that, there's more to it. Yes. But the seed is that. Jesus is enough and you are not. And in time, God will produce fruit. There will be change in your life. But it starts as a very small little mustard seed. Man, I think there's multiple ways this applies to us, but I can't think of any better way than for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And this was already planned. Um, this is the mustard seed. <laughs> 
This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross in our place. He shed his blood in our place so that we could be forgiven and have a relationship with God forever. If you've never believed that today, it's true. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, and he can save you, okay? Let me pray, and then we're going to have the deacons come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you for the seed that was planted in my grandfather's life many years ago. God, and I'm thankful today for the lasting impact and fruit that that has produced in my own life and countless people's lives, God. God, may we be like those neighbors and so value one mustard seed that we would share the good news of Jesus wherever we go, with whoever we meet. And so we love you, and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, God, remind us of grace this morning. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.